You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, church, family. How are y'all doing this morning? Love it, love it. Um, Well, hey, welcome. For those of you who don't know, my name is Tamarcus Raglan. I'm the young adult minister here at Citizens Church. And um, man, it's just a pleasure. My wife and I, Chrissy, have been here for almost five years, and it's just been a joy coming on staff and just being able to uh, serve. And so just thank you guys. Um, If you're new here or listening online for the first time, uh, just thank you for tuning in. Thank you for coming. Uh, We're glad that you're with us. Um, This morning, um, we're going to continue a conversation that we've been in over the past few weeks of Advent, right? We've been considering what it looks like to live faithfully in between um, the two Advents of Jesus. And so in just a few days, we're probably going to gather with family and friends and open gifts and eat good food um, and remember Jesus's first Advent, him coming um, and the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. And in so doing, we also get to look forward with uh, eager anticipation when he will return um, and finish the work that he began some millennium ago. And so one of the ways that we live faithfully now in between those advents uh, is by holding on to the promises that God um, has given us in his word. And so last week we got to talk about the promise of peace. Um, and this morning we are going to be considering the promise of joy. So if you turn your Bible to Luke chapter 4, if you haven't already, we'll be in the passage that uh, Jill just read. Um, and we'll give some context around and after it. But this was Jesus's first sermon. Right? As he was starting his earthly ministry, he goes to his hometown and he preaches a sermon about joy. Right? What, a, what a joyous occasion to talk about joy. Um, but there's something troubling about this first sermon. Right? Uh, initially, the entire congregation, the assembly that he's preaching to. They're, they're excited. They're hanging um, on every word, waiting to hear him explain the text. And by the end of his sermon, um, and after he explains what he meant by it, they were trying to throw him off of a cliff, which is kind of unnerving for me because that means if I do this right, that some of you might try to do that. Um, but luckily here in Plano, there's no like cliffs or hills or bumps. It's just as flat as can be. And so we should, we should be pretty safe. Um, but, this, but that's what happens, right? Like they try to um, take his life after he preaches a sermon about joy and human flourishing. Why? Because Jesus essentially says, right, uh, I have come to bring good news of great joy, but you won't find it where you're looking for it now. Right? I have a childhood friend uh, who is a personal trainer And I mean, he's probably been one of the most fit guys I've seen since we were like in kindergarten. He was just chiseled and cut. I don't know where where he gets it all from. Um, But whatever I'm looking for fitness advice, he's typically the guy that I go to to ask for advice. And so not too long ago, um, I was in the midst of trying to get my core situation intact. And so I was asking him for some pointers and tips on like how to do that. Um, And, you know, I'm expecting for him to, you know, shoot me back with, hey, you know, you need to you know, do this 30-minute you know, ab cruncher max thing at the end of your workout, and it'll be great. And I was you know, ready for that. And he, he texts me back, and he's like, oh, abs come in the kitchen. And I was like, I knew what he meant by that. I didn't like that answer. So I was like, no, like, what's the other way where you like eat what you want, 
but then you just work real hard and then it just fixes itself. And he's like, well, it doesn't work like that. It's in the kitchen. And I was like, well, I thought I called a personal trainer. You sound like a nutritionist. And this wasn't, this wasn't what I wanted to hear this morning. And so, right, but he was right. And I was frustrated because um, his answer blew away my paradigm, right? Like I was ready to change my workout routine. I was ready to add an extra rep. I was ready to do whatever it was that he asked me to do in the gym. Um, but I was not ready to make the sacrifices that he was asking of me in the kitchen. Um, and like Jesus' audience, many of us, right, can be very comfortable with the idea of joy being found where we're willing to look for it. But like it's, we, like for, we would like for it to be where we're willing to look, right? If it's, if it's just hard work, if I just need to work really hard and on the under, other end of that I receive joy, like I can do that. If it's on the other side of educational accomplishments or wealth or, or prestige or comfort or leisure or that next vacation, like all those things I'm down for. Or maybe, right, like I'd be okay if it was just the absence of something in my life, right? Some absence of pain, some absence of trial or hardship. If it was just on the other side of that, like I'm willing to go there for joy. But what Jesus will respond to that is he says, oh, but the joy that I bring isn't found in self-determination or in the accumulation of things of this world, but it comes through sacrifice for others, right? Jesus says, you're looking for joy in the gym, but joy that I bring is only found in the kitchen. He doesn't just tell us where it is, but he models it for us. If you look back at the passage in verse 18, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Right, the year of the Lord's favor was an allusion um, to the year of Jubilee, which for the, the nation of Israel, this was the good news and the great joy that the angels brought to the shepherds, right? Jesus was declaring to his people that today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus has come to bring liberation and great joy to all people. Right, that's good news. Liberation and joy. They're two sides of the same coin. You don't get one without the other, but you get neither of them without the gospel. And because joy is not something that you create, but it is the fruit of being reconciled to God, the gospel is essential. So here's the reality, right? If, if you want freedom, Jesus says, right, if you're looking for the place where true joy is manifest that I've brought, it only comes through the gospel. And this is the, the, the hard truth of the gospel. The gospel, right, which is the, the source of that joy and that freedom, is only for the spiritually poor, especially for the literal poor. And those who receive it find joy in becoming both. Let me say that one more time. The gospel is only for the spiritual poor, especially the literal poor. And those who receive it find joy in becoming both. Uh, my father and I uh, love to fish. One of the ways in which we uh, bond primarily is fishing together all throughout my life. That's been like one of my favorite things to do with my dad. And uh, we typically fish for crappie because that's the most tasty fish for a fish fry. And um, normally that means we're standing on the dock and just fishing in a corner of some like brushy area. Um, and the technique is the most important thing, right? Some fishermen, you know, you have like a bobber that kind of floats to show you when you're catching the fish. When you fish for crappie, it's just a straight line. And it's important that the line stays tight. If it's too much slack in the line, can't see when the fish gets it, 
you can't feel it, right? But if you have a nice tight line, as soon as the fish starts to hit, you can feel the line move. You can see the line move in the water. Um, and the tension is what helps you do that, right? Um, today, right, there are many points in the sermon, there's a, a lot of tension in what Jesus is asking from us. Um, and the, the comfortable thing to do would be to add slack so we don't have to wrestle with that tension. But what the text actually invites us into and what I want to invite us into as well is that we would wrestle with the tension, right? So that we wouldn't miss the thing that God might be pulling us towards this morning and the, the, the kind of joy that he might be inviting us into that takes us to places that we um, aren't super eager to go. So the first thing, right, first point, the gospel is only for the spiritually poor. Uh, if we look at the text, here we find Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth, right? He's chilling in the synagogue per usual, and it's his turn to read from the scroll, right? So he grabs Isaiah, and it says that he finds the space in it in our Bibles marked Isaiah 61, verse 1 through 2, and he reads it aloud, right? And this, as was customary in the synagogue, he reads the passage, rolls it, sits down, Everyone else will remain standing, and they're waiting to hear Jesus explain the text, right? And as he stands there, they're all um, eyes uh, glued on him, fixed and ready to hear what he has to say, and he offers a much shorter sermon than you're about to hear right now, right? Verse 21, he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And it goes on to say, all spoke well of him. Right? They marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. Unlike most other places in the Gospels, when Jesus um, finishes this sermon, people actually are excited about what they just heard. Right? In their mind, they're thinking, like, our Messiah has finally come. Like, th- today is the day that he is going to fix all of the things that are going on. He's going to come and, and take up our cause. Right? Uh, some of them were kind of thinking to themselves, like, but isn't this Joseph's boy, like the carpenter? We know him. They're like, yeah, but I mean, that just means he's on our side and he's going to help us good people beat those bad people that are around us. Right. Like he's he's coming to fix it all. And the problem with that is what they thought was going to happen. They were mistaken about. Right. Jesus knew that they didn't understand his message because they liked the sermon. And so Jesus, right, later on and after they uh, are excited about what they say, he goes on to to parse out the, the difficulty in the text and he brings up. Two individuals, one was a, from the Old Testament, one was a, a poor widow and one was a wealthy general, but both of them uh, were Gentile idol worshipers. Both of them were marginalized and yet both of them were spiritually poor. And for the people of Israel, they would have been the antithesis of the hero of the story, but Jesus elevates them up as the heroes of the story, right? Why does Jesus even bring them up? Essentially, he responds to the people in the synagogue and all their excitement about the Messiah by saying, I wasn't sent for people like you. I was sent for people like them. Like, like, ouch, Jesus. Like, what do you you mean by that? Like, I thought you came to save the whole world. And it's that's true. But he didn't come to save people who are already on his side because nobody's on Jesus's side. Right. He says it himself later in Luke five. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Right. Nobody is righteous. And if you think you are, he says in the Bible that we're mistaken. Once Jesus clarified this point to the people in his sermon, they tried to push him off the cliff. They were offended. There are many people in our culture today 
who are offended by the gospel that Jesus brings. Right? Like, how could a good and loving God punish somebody for all eternity? Like, I know a lot of people who are basically pretty good. Like, how could they not make it into God's graces by their works alone, right? Well, the Bible says that no one is good, not even one. This is why the gospel is only for the spiritually poor, and to everyone else, it's just offensive, right? Timothy Keller, he labels the, the group of people that Jesus was, would have been talking to in the synagogue and those like them as um, the spiritual middle class. He says there, there are two markers that you, you notice of the spiritual middle class. He says the first thing, he says, whenever God acts in a way that is uncontrollable, right? Whenever God acts in a way that demonstrates that he doesn't owe you anything, he says the response is to do away with him. He says that the second thing, he says, is you always will see in the spiritual middle class an overt or hidden disdain for the poor and the marginalized among them. So you consider those in the synagogue, right? These would have been the ones who attend church faithfully, who are studying God's word. They are really trying to seek God's face and being obedient. And that is great, right? And the the problem here, though, with them is that beneath that layer of piety was this hidden hostility towards God, right? And we all know the kind of obvious hostility that someone can have towards God, right? The, The person who shakes their fist at the heavens and says, right, I'm my own God and I can do whatever I want. Nobody can tell me otherwise. Um, and that's, that's a more obvious kind, but there is a subtle kind of hostility towards God, right? One that manifests itself even through obedience, right? It's a, a kind of divine manipulation or blackmail where we say, God, I've, I've really been trying to, to worship you well, right? Like I've been faithful, um, I've been serving in this capacity and that capacity, and I've been working to kill my sin, and I've been faithful in devotion. You owe me a good life. Like, you, you, you owe me. Or maybe it's you, you see others around you flourishing and prospering, and you feel as though you've, you've earned a spot above them, and it's like, God, how could you give them such a good life? Like, I've been working hard. I've been faithful. As I look at their life, like, they're not even cognizant of you. They're not thinking about you or trying to serve you. How come their life seems to be more fulfilling and more joyful than mine? Right? But Jesus says, right, that that is spiritual middle class talking. He says that I did not come for that. Tamarcus, you said today was supposed to be about the promise of joy, and I feel like this was a setup, right? This, we're getting there, but before we can truly appreciate the promise of joy, we have to understand where we maybe have misunderstood the promise. Right, like you, we might look for joy that is promised um, by the American dream, but it's not found there. Not the kind that Jesus offers. True joy and liberty are not found there, but in the gospel of the kingdom. And only the spiritually poor can get that. And so, if we just looked at what it means to be spiritually middle class, what does it mean to be spiritually poor? Right, whereas the spiritual middle class looks at their external deeds and perceives that God owes them something because of what they've done, the spiritually poor look at the inward parts of their heart and they realize because of the darkness within them that God doesn't owe them anything. Right, the spiritual middle class may think that they are basically pretty good when they stand before a holy God, but the spiritually poor know better. Right, the, the spiritually poor tells themselves, look, I know that I'm a hot mess, right? Like, how could God have anything to do with me, right? If God doesn't let me in to heaven by his grace alone and by his mercy alone, there can be no hope for me, right? We see this in the the scriptures and the stories like the prodigal son, right? It was the rebellious son, the disrespectful son, the 
son, as my mom would say, who was acting a plum food, right? Like who returned to his father spiritually poor, right? He said, I don't, I don't deserve to be called a son anymore. Right? Like I barely deserve to be called a servant in my father's house, right? I am a disgrace to my family, but maybe my father will give me some mercy. Maybe he will let me come back as a servant. And when he comes back to his father, he gives him everything. He throws a party. Meanwhile, what does the older brother do? He says, Father, how, how could you do this? How could you, how could you give him the, all of these things after all of the pain that he's caused the family? He went away and he wasn't thinking about us. He took the money, all the problems that it caused you and mom. Meanwhile, I've been here working hard, trying to maintain the house. And you thought, like, can you hear the spiritual middle classness in his voice, right? Like he is offended, right? Do you hear how he could, someone like that could be offended to the gospel while they wanted to kill him in the passage that we read today, while only the spiritually poor can receive the gospel that is offered? It's almost Christmas time, so there's a good chance maybe some of you are among us or here at church for the first time. Maybe you are back for the first time in a long time or tuning in. And, you know, maybe you wrestled a little bit before coming, right? I don't know all the stories in the room, but maybe for some of you, you woke up this morning and in light of Christmas coming, you decided to come to church and were kind of unsure, man, like, should I, should I be there? Maybe you're thinking about some decisions you've made in your life or some lifestyle things that are going on that you're like, I don't know if I'll be accepted. Like, can I go? Like, will it be awkward? Will it be weird? And maybe for some of others, you've experienced you know, the worst in the church. Maybe you've experienced some of the, uh, the, the ails of, of poor leadership and you felt the weight of how that uh, uh, pours down on a person. And I just want to let you know as we've reached this point in the message that Jesus Christ came and took on flesh for you. You belong in this space. Like he, if you look at Jesus' life, right, it was those who felt as though they were undeserving of Jesus' presence that he actually gifted with his presence, right? It was those who were weighed down by the yoke of the religious elite and their, their pride and arrogance that he came to lift the yoke off of, right? If he, if he walked into this room right now to invite somebody in for dinner, he's not coming up to the stage to me first. He's coming to you. That is the kind of heart and person that Jesus is. He sees the people that no one else sees, right? If you think you have something to bring, the gospel tells you it's worthless. And that can be offensive if you cling to your things. But if you come with nothing, expecting nothing, knowing that God doesn't deserve, or we don't deserve anything from God, the gospel tells you that you have everything. And that is where we find great joy. So the first thing is you got to be spiritually poor. Second thing, right, it is also for, especially for the literal poor. How so? For starters, when the Bible talks about the poor, more times than not, it's referring to a class of people, right? Like with various um, levels of dependency. So rather it's financial poverty or it's the cripple or the widow or the orphan or et cetera, right? Like it is, it is a, a class of people who, in order to flourish in this world, require protection from those who could exercise authority and power over them. Right. And so these were the people that seemed throughout the gospel to respond to Jesus's call in a specific way. Right. Um, even just here in Luke. Right. If you remember later on in chapter seven, there's a woman uh, with a reputation as being a sinner. Right. Which would have put her in that lower class. She comes to Jesus in the presence of Pharisees and she anoints Jesus's feet with with expensive oil and wipes it with her hair. 
And the Pharisees want to reject her, but Jesus accepts her and gives her mercy. Right immediately after that, the Bible says not only the 12 disciples, but there was a band of women who were following after Jesus. And this wasn't the, of the high class individuals. These were those who were filled with uh, evil spirits, who had had disabilities, who were sinners, right, who found safety and covering under Jesus's leadership. And over and over again, we see women and minorities and the poor and the sick and the marginalized and the powerless who get it. Jesus comes to them and he, he offers his gospel and they receive it. They respond to Jesus with full abandon. And it's the Pharisees and the religious elite who are offended and angered by Jesus most often. Now, remember, it's not that the gospel only goes to the poor because there are plenty in the scriptures and in the gospel who were wealthy and yet were still poor in spirit. Right? What the Bible is not saying is that poverty is some kind of virtue that automatically gives you a kind of righteousness that you can't achieve anywhere else in life. Yet, for some reason, right in the text, we see that it is made evident that God gives this special attention to the poor and the powerless among us. And as a result, they respond to him in a very powerful way. Um, I've personally been wrestling with this concept uh, a lot in my life and something that has continued to shape how I understand God's concern for the powerless and even how they experience joy in him despite circumstance um, has been looking back and gleaning from the rich Christian heritage that uh, I found steeped in the black church. Right, like there's this uh, book that I'm reading by a woman named uh, Octavia V. Rogers Albert. It's called The House of Bondage. Um, and she was a daughter of two formerly enslaved individuals and she writes of stories of family and friends um, that she encountered and just hearing how they testify to clinging to God and to Jesus, even in the midst of all that they endured. And one of the uh, ladies story that she tells is a woman she called Aunt Charlotte. Um, Aunt Charlotte had uh, she was just writing about how she had uh, given birth to several children that um, that all passed before she was granted her freedom. And Octavia was just shook by her testimony. And she asked her, she said, um, once, uh, she said, I asked her once whether she ever felt lonely in this unfriendly world. And this was how Aunt Charlotte responded. She said, no, my dear, how can a child of God feel lonesome? My heavenly father took care of me in slave time. He led me all the way along and now he has set me free and I am free both in soul and in body. And she said, I heard a preacher say once since I got free, not a foot of land do I possess, not a cottage in the wilderness, and just so it is with me. Sometimes I don't have bread to eat, but I tell you, my soul is always feasting on my dear Jesus. Nobody knows what it is to taste of Jesus, but them that has been washed by him. When I first read that, it literally brought me to tears. And part of me wanted to be offended for her. Like, how could you say that? Right? Like, how does somebody endure such pain and such hardship and find so much kindness and joy in God? And it was because she knows that God didn't owe her anything. And yet, not only did he suffer for her, he suffered like her. Jesus knew what it was like to suffer injustice. He knew what it was like to be poor. Right? Aunt Charlotte sang, not a foot of land do I possess, not a cottage in the wilderness. And she found comfort in a savior who'd reply, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. She was not offended by the gospel, but she was affirmed. She met a God who weeps 
and she was eager to give him everything. And I just, I, I think about that, and with all of my Bible college studies, I just have so much to learn from the faith of Aunt Charlotte and those like her. Maybe you're like me, and what keeps me from seeing the pure joy and freedom that's offered in the gospel is I love my things far more than I should. Right? I, I don't want to do the work that Jesus is asking me to in the kitchen. And I asked this question one time to the, the young adults not too long ago that I'm continually wrestling with myself. And that is, right, do, do you believe that Jesus lived the good life? And before you answer, right, just what comes to mind when you typically think of the good life? Does that vision look like Jesus' life? Does it account for the real pains and suffering that we uh, often deal with in this life? Does it account for the kind of self-sacrifice and, and, and humbling of self that Jesus demonstrated in his life? Does it account for having times where we have to go without? Because if, if not, then that's not the same kind of picture of good life that Jesus offers us. And maybe, right, in their poverty, right, that the, those who, who have less, who have less of the world's luxury, who has less of the world's power, right, they are already untethered from the things that makes it so difficult for the wealthy to respond to Jesus. Which leads to the last point, right? The gospel is only for the poor in spirit. It's especially for the literal poor. And those who receive it find joy in becoming both. What do I mean by that? The simplest way to put it is to receive the gospel. You must be willing to become like Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. You see, Jesus didn't just become spiritually poor. He did that too. That's why the Bible says that he made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. But he literally became poor as well. He emptied himself. He didn't take on the form of an aristocrat, but he became a servant, a suffering servant for all. Jesus self-identified with the poor. And that's why he said, what you do unto the least of these, you also do unto me. If I self-identify with the poor and the marginalized, I can't ignore them. Because when I see them, I see myself. Right? Something else the Lord has been convicting me of as I've uh, been thinking through this is how often I, I measure my, my spiritual growth by particular measurements. Right? Like I like to think about how um, I've been uh, doing, practicing the disciplines or how faithful I've been in my personal devotions. Right? Maybe I'm thinking about the, the kind of work of ministry I've been doing or what books I'm reading or how I've been killing sin. And all of these are a part of our walk with God and are necessary and are good in building godly character. Um, but Jesus just adds something to the litmus test that I think often gets neglected. Listen to what God says uh, to the people of Israel in Isaiah 58. Um, it's in several other places, but this is um, one that really gets to it. He says, cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they are a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgments of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. But then the people ask, why have we fasted and you seen it not? 
according to my litmus test, right, like they were on the money, like they were seeking God daily. They were in the word. They are steadfast in prayer and fasting. He says that they delighted to know the ways of God. They were seeking his face and attempting to draw near. And this isn't just like condescending talk, like they were really people seeking to be faithful to God and to know him and to love him. And so when they say to God, like, God, why isn't this working? Why, why don't I feel closer? Where's the joy? Where's the, the presence? I feel like I'm maybe running in a hamster wheel and I'll just keep kind of hitting the same hiccups over and over again. And God right, invites to push them further. And he says this, he says, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. It's such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself. Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? It's not this fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke and to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you seek, see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Do you notice he said they seek their own pleasure in the day of their fast? Pleasure isn't always a bad thing, but it's a lousy substitute for joy, right? Unlike joy, uh, we can manufacture pleasure um, for ourselves. And if we're not careful, that pleasure can become our gods. And if it's a God, uh, that kind of God requires um, worship at the expense of other people. And joy just doesn't, it doesn't do that. It actually asks something different from us, right? Did you see what God was after in his response to them? He says, if we are truly spiritually poor, if our study and devotion and worship is, is working and changing our hearts within us, if we've truly been loved by him and know that everything that we have is grace upon grace and every danger avoided is mercy upon mercy, then we would be generous and loving and move towards the poor among us. Look at the church in Acts 4. The gospel gets preached and the spirit falls on the believers and suddenly there's this radical just generosity and giving away of their things so that those among them can be supported and lifted up. There's actually record of a Roman emperor attesting to the generosity of the church and saying, man, these people are different. Like, not only are they taking care of their own poor so much so that there's no needs among them, but they help our poor. Like, we need to step it up, right? And he starts sending out grain and everything to kind of win the people back. But the, the church was always marked by this radical generosity. And the whole point of the parable of the treasure in the field is following Jesus will cost you everything you have. But what is offered to you in return is infinitely more worthy and more valuable than everything you have. So he says the kingdom of heaven is like the treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. And in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought the field. When you found something that is more valuable and more worthy and more beautiful than anything else, Jesus says we don't hedge our bets. Right. The guy doesn't go in the field and just take the treasure. It costs him something. It cost him everything. And he it was a joy for him to pay. It was a joy for him to pay. 
And when we've received the gospel poor in spirit, knowing that we don't deserve anything from God but wrath, and yet have received an abundance of mercy and grace, it changes us, right? Like we, we start to see all the good in our lives as a gift from a good God and not a wage that we've earned, right? We'll be eager to build his kingdom and to accomplish his will rather than our own, right? We'll start to see our possessions and our wealth and our talents and our treasures as a tool that we can use to serve others rather than just our own interests. And rather than clinging to our rights and privileges like Jesus, we'll be eager to lay them down for the sake of those around us. This is where joy is found, joining Jesus on his mission and living a life that is poured out for others rather than for self. Right? This is what it looks like for us to hold on to the promise of joy now in between the two advents. Right? Today, with joy, we get the opportunity with Jesus to pour ourselves out for those around us that we might bring God's kingdom now, knowing that it will not be brought until completion ultimately until he returns again one day to, uh, to finish what he started. And we can be sure that he's going to finish what he started as we look back and remember what he's already accomplished on the cross. See, our joy is secure if it is truly placed in the promises of God. Jesus really did come proclaiming good news to the poor and proclaiming liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind and setting at liberty those who are oppressed. We get to join him by doing the hard work in the kitchen alongside him. Um, as I was preparing this week for this morning, uh, I was talking to my wife, Chrissy, um, and just telling her how convicting uh, this, just this sermon prep has been for me. Um, I don't know how you feel listening to it, but I just know all throughout the study, I was just like, okay, God, okay, God, got it. Um, and I just, I felt like there were so many areas that he was calling me um, deeper in that were really challenging. Um, and maybe even now you're processing, like, what does this what does this mean for me? Like, is this, are you telling me that God doesn't want me to have good things? Am I not supposed to, you know, spend on this? Or how much am I supposed to give here? And I mean, the honest answer is I don't know exactly what God is calling each person to the room. There might be somebody in the room that he's, he's, not, he's not asking for you money. It's time. Maybe, right, maybe it's a, a way that you can serve somebody around you. Maybe for others it is. Maybe it's continuing to do what you're doing. Maybe it's increasing what you're doing. I'm not sure. Um, but what I do know, and I can tell you what God has been um, challenging me in my heart, and maybe as we wrestle together, we can uh, continue to press forward in, in obedience with God together. And so two things that I just feel like he's made quite clear to me. Um, the first is, is he's calling me to a life of sacrifice. Um, I don't know what the, the golden balance of those things are, like I said, but this is what I know for sure, right? That the, the word of God calls me to live a life that is sacrificial. And if it's a sacrifice, then that means it's supposed to hurt. Right? Like I can't just look at my time and my possessions um, and the things that God has blessed me with and say, as long as I can do all of the things that I want, then I'll like give what's left. Like that's not the kind of life he's invited me into, but rather he's invited me into one where sacrificially, where I give up some things that I like in order to be a blessing to others in order to help build his kingdom. Right? Like when I looked at my life and my, my, my current state of benevolence, no matter how I sliced it, I knew the scriptures were asking more of me than I was currently doing. Um, and maybe that could be the case for you, right? And, and not just to the people that I know or that, that we like, right? He's, he's calling us to, to give to those who need and who may be on the other side of the fence than we are. Because remember, Jesus didn't come uh, to rescue friends, right? He came to rescue enemies. 
Um, and we all have been recipients of his grace and kindness uh, towards his enemies. The second thing I've learned is that this is, this is a process, right? Like this is something that we get to grow in as we walk with God. Uh, Jesus uh, is, is growing me in all areas of my faith. And just like those other areas, God wants to expand uh, my generosity and love for neighbors. And he tells me that like, there's actually joy there. Right. Like with that in mind, uh, maybe maybe we're tempted to do this. Right. Like we can hear a sermon like this today. And with Christmas coming up, you know, you open gifts. So you think about gifts you've done and maybe you're like, ah, oh, like, should I have this? Like, and I don't think the answer is like that we feel bad about the things that we have. I think we take that as an opportunity to remember, man, all of the good things that God has given me is a gift. Right. Like. Everything that God has blessed me with is a gift. And it's, I don't have this. I'm not where I am. I don't have what I have because I'm just the hardest worker and the brightest person in the world. Like my good heavenly father has granted this to me. Right. And just receive it with joy and remembering um, who God is and what he's been in our life. And maybe alongside that, what that means is, man, we just start to take steps towards determining what is God calling me into? Maybe there's a person that comes to mind that you're like, man, God has, has been prompting me to bless this person. And maybe I just want to make a decision on how I'm going to do that. Or maybe there's somebody that I've been um, a blessing towards. And for whatever reason, I was thinking about withholding. And he's just calling me to just keep giving or to increase. Like I don't, like I said, I'm not sure what that is, but this is what I know, right? The answer isn't going to fall just in us loving the things that we have less. Like what's going to change our hearts is actually loving Jesus more, right? Like the answer is clinging to the cross and beholding the beauty of the king. And like, here's the point summed up in a sentence. The more sacred Jesus becomes in our hearts, the less sacred all the things in our hands will be. The more sacred Jesus becomes in our heart, the less sacred all the things in our hands will be. And the more eager and the easier it'll be to, to give what God calls me to give. Following Jesus will cost us everything. But what is offered to us in return is infinitely more worthy than what we have. If we want real joy, if we want real freedom, it doesn't come in accumulating all of the things till our heart is content. It actually comes with being content with Jesus and realizing that all of the things he gave me is just a tool to build and serve his kingdom. Right. We collectively citizens of heaven, what first enjoy God. Right. And we love people and we make disciples in the process. Um, that is what he's calling us into, um, and may we walk that road together. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. Um, Lord, as I just reflect on um, all that was said and um, all that's been studied, Lord, I just the thing that is just constantly um, I'm being reminded of in my own heart is I'm just far more self-centered than I want to admit um, that I'm far more materialistic than I want to admit. Um, and I, I know that that change in my heart doesn't just come from wanting to like those things less. It comes from pressing in and loving you more. It comes from um, believing you when you say that um, in your right hands are pleasures forevermore and that you offer the true abundant life that brings joy. Father, may we all press into um, Lord, what you're calling us to today. Lord, I pray that, um, Lord, as we just consider the abundance of the riches of mercy and grace that is ours in Jesus, that like him, we would be eager to follow in his footsteps and seek out opportunities to, ser to serve and love and to be a blessing to those around us. 
Um, not so that we can uh, garner any kind of applause, um, not so that we can um, feel um, justified in ourselves, but that we might be able to make much of you, that those around us would, would, would see our generosity and would see um, our, our sacrifice and would see our serving and our giving and would ask, like, what would prompt such a thing? And we could point them up to you and we'll say, let me tell you about a God who gave everything he had for me. A God who laid down his life, who wrapped himself in flesh, who humbled himself so that I might be lifted up, so that one day I might be glorified alongside him. So we just get to walk in the footsteps of our Savior. Lord, would you just be with us? Would you continue to speak to us and convict us and comfort us and give mercy and grace um, as we walk in more obedience to you? We love you. See us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.